Welcome to episode 19 of the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Dr. Craig DL, and today I am joined by Jonathan Shaffey, our campaigns officer at Commonweal, and a special guest today, Callum Slater, who has um, been a, a researcher with Commonweal for the past few weeks. So, Callum, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, a little bit about me. I am from the United States by way of New Jersey. Uh, my mother and my grandfather and all their family were from Clyde Bank and grew up in the area. My mom went to the University of Strathclyde before moving to the States. Uh, I'm an undergraduate student. I have a year left in my undergraduate studies. I have a double major in Russian studies and world politics, but my concentration is on European and Eurasian geopolitical affairs, particularly in international trade and international political economy. And Callum, so what brings you over to over to here to research with Commonweal? Well, like I said earlier, um, I have family from here, so I've been coming to Scotland at a minimum once a year my entire life, if not more. I've always considered it a second home. I always took a lot of pride in being Scottish growing up in the States. It always meant a lot to me whenever I got to put on a kilt and celebrate that heritage. Uh, I was always very proud of the fact that nobody I knew had the names that me, my brother, or my sister had. We all had typically Scottish names, and I always loved coming here and meeting other Ewans and Callans and Ailsas mm -hmm. and just feeling a little bit more at home. And considering the current developments in... The United Kingdom, considering that England are moving towards a no-deal Brexit, uh, it looked like the question of independence was going to loom large again. And caught in this middle ground of having grown up in America, but having this, what would be Scottish citizenship if yep. um, independence were to happen, I envisioned it as a really good opportunity to both enrich my studies, but also provide what felt like an appropriate contribution to the independence effort rather than simply vote where I've never grown up here and it wouldn't impact my way of mm -hmm. life to contribute policy research and to provide knowledge to the, to the campaign, to the effort, and just give the voting public a little bit more context mm -hmm. with what they're dealing with and the implications of a no-deal Brexit or the implications of Scottish independence. That felt like a really good opportunity to me. And you've come at a very exciting time from Commonweal's perspective because one of the things that we've been working on this summer is since um, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, declared a climate emergency uh, in Scotland, was one of the first governments, if not possibly the first government, to announce to take that on board as an official policy. We have been working hard to take that challenge and produce a blueprint for a, a Scottish Green New Deal. So... We know that Scotland wants to become a zero-carbon nation by 2045. We know the state of our carbon emissions at the moment. What we want to know now is how do we get from here to there? Um, so we've taken on a big project to look at all the sectors of the Scottish economy, transport, agriculture, energy, and show how these things can be decarbonised uh, by that deadline. And the project Callum has been working on, a very exciting one, very big one, is international trade. So Callum, tell us a little bit about your, your, your report. Um, well, there's a lot to tell, uh, but my research had to start with, like you said, figuring out exactly what a Green New Deal would look like domestically in Scotland. 
And it was really the first time I studied international trade from the perspective of a policy that looked in before it looked out. And that was the mindset that I had to bring to my research, mm. sort of study what forms of free trade agreements and international trade structures would allow Scotland to protect the domestic practices that, as you mentioned, no other country in the world have even endeavored to acknowledge the need for, nonetheless develop the policy surrounding them. And one thing I found was that Scotland, with the Green New Deal and trying to implement the circular economy, will often be dealing with trading partners still operating on that linear model. Mm. And they're going to yeah. need to find a way to trade with those people because no country can survive entirely on its own and international trade is a key component of any economy for any country but they're also going to have to realize there are concessions to be made and that they can't be per se a major market power or at least not in the structure of the current global economy. I suppose this is quite a, an important concept to, to, to get around it. If Scotland became a completely zero carbon nation domestically, but we are still trading or seeking to expand trade with countries that have not got there yet or are not even planning to get there, then that has implications for essentially our net carbon footprint. You know, if we, if we are not producing carbon ourselves, but the goods that we import uh, have a carbon footprint as associated with them, then we're still a positive carbon nation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I found. Sometimes carbon emissions will be measured wherever the product is being moved, regardless of the country it was produced in. But other times, regardless of where a product is being moved, the country it's produced in will be credited with that carbon footprint. And all of those factors are things that Scotland are going to have to keep in mind when they look to enter into long-term trade agreements internationally. So have you found any examples of... of uh, either countries that are starting to move towards this or, or countries that are proving particularly bad examples that maybe might influence the, the, the shape of any negotiations that Scotland might have with, with regard to trade? What I've found for the most part is that the bigger the country and the bigger the economy, the less likely they are to have adopted any serious sort of climate mitigation policy. Um, I can't quite remember the statistic, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but it's... China, the U.S., India, and the European Union represent well over 50% of global carbon emissions. And so it's the major market leaders who also look to have a lot of their policy downloaded at a domestic level that Scotland are going to have to be wary of. And that was the biggest finding. And in particular, I found that they're going to have to have a very nuanced approach to trade with the European Union because Brexit is going to show that it's not cost efficient to trade with them essentially from a unilateral perspective with no other trade apart no other trade partners or trade agreements supporting you but they look to have as much of their policy downloaded beyond the EU market boundaries wherever they can now that's a phrase you've used in the report that that will be being published um, in the in the next a uh, couple of months at Commonweal. Um, this is a phrase that you've used several times, this concept of policy download and policy upload. Would you like to explain then? Yeah, absolutely. I think policy downloading and policy uploading are two things Scotland will need to have a really, really practiced awareness of, and they should look to establish themselves as policy uploaders wherever they can. A policy downloader is a country who enters a trade deal usually if they're downloading with a bigger partner. And the terms of that trade deal mean that they have to implement policy 
for example, if Scotland were trading with the EU, they would have to take EU-level policy and apply it domestically. So the, this is something that, you, that, that perhaps you've spoken about a, uh, a few times, jo Jonathan, is this idea that if we become independent, we do need to consider the, the implications of the alliances we make, um, especially with regard to the EU. I know that we have a, a general blend of opinions within the Commonwealth Office over where Scotland should end up with regard to the... the yeah, EU. I mean, I, I suppose I wonder, um, my own view is that the EU is an inherently neoliberal institution. Um, there are different views about that, of course. Um, but, you know, the example that you've just given there does raise the question that does global trade as it currently functions, the global system as it currently functions, I mean, is it ever going to be um, a sustainably built economy? Is it ever going to be something that can drive and gear towards things like a Green New Deal? Or is its permanent interest in short-term profit going to undermine that? And, you know, to what extent does that mean that you're in favour or not in favour of globalisation versus uh, national sovereignty, for example? It's hard to say if the global economy will ever operate on the circular scale that the Green New Deal envisions for Scotland. Um, mm. The real issue right now is there's no global leader mm. in mm. climate change policy. Like I said before, all of the major economies are also all of the major carbon emitters, and they go hand in hand, and that's linked directly to the linear economic practices, which are centered on consumerism and a lot of it, making more and buying more and throwing it out and doing, all, doing it all again and not using any of the stuff you used in the first cycle in the next cycle. There are opportunities, though, and again, that's where I found this the most is with the EU. In 2009, the United States, with the Obama administration, really did want to take up the mantle of that global leader in climate change. Donald Trump has pivoted hard away from that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the EU do want to be a global leader in climate change. They've pressed various United Nations committees, various international committees to change global standards for emissions. Uh, the EU themselves try to be policy uploaders, which is the other term, where you go to organizations and you use your diplomatic ties and you use your forms of access in the policy formation process to insert your own domestic level or more localized views. So for the EU, it would be at a entirely global level. For Scotland, that would be at an EU level. And you have them applied to a broader scale. And the EU try to do this because it's easier for them to have trade partners that way. If EU trading standards are global trading standards, then they don't have to force as much regulatory, regulatory alignment as they have in the past. The issue for the EU when it comes to climate change is a strong climate change policy needs a reliable and dependable energy system, and the EU mm. don't have that. Their energy import needs are the Achilles heel in their trade deficit every year. If you look at what the EU imports and what they export, it's always the imports of natural resources and fossil fuels mm -hmm. and electricity that puts them in a deficit. So and Scotland could be in quite a powerful position in that sense, given its renewable energy stores. Yeah, and given its natural resources and the approach I found in my research that I think would best suit Scotland would be to approach the um, 
EFTA, European yep. Free Trade Agreement. Mm. And that's a long-established, considered first-generation trade deal with the European Union. And so the trade partners from there are considered reliable. The European Union work with them on a pretty trustworthy basis. But you still trade with the European Union as a third country, which means you can trade bilaterally. It would just be Scotland and the European policy body, and they wouldn't have to address individual member states in the policy process. So, yeah, we've seen this um, this relationship play out in some of the, the EU's energy proposals, mm-hmm. energy plans. We know that, well, we know that Norway is particularly influential in the EFTA, not just because it's the largest country in the, the organisation, but also because it does have a, a large amount of energy there in the form of oil, although they too are all starting to look towards moving away from that. But we've also seen uh, initiatives like the the energy, the electricity grids that are, are proposed or trying to be set up that would link uh, Norway, Sweden, Iceland and potentially Scotland into a large supergrid where we could potentially see Scottish off- offshore wind, Icelandic geothermal and Norwegian hy- hydroelectric power all working together to, to help feed the, the EU with the energy that you say it really needs. The, energy, the, the EU is extremely energy thirsty. Yeah, and that's why I like the EFTA a lot as an option for Scotland because all the countries there, Norway in particular and also Switzerland, have a history of leveraging EU energy import needs to defend their own domestic policies Mm. and create healthy trade relationships where they have a significant amount of access to the EU policy formation process. Obviously, this still comes with costs, but... I think the EU really do want to be a global leader when it comes to climate change. And they ratified the Paris Agreement and set forth some pretty ambitious goals, and they're way behind the mark on that. And that's mostly because for member states, national priorities, which are generally fears about the security of supply for fuel, are being conflated to the EU policy process. And so that's trending the EU away from those climate mitigation goals that they're setting for themselves, and they get hammered by fossil fuel companies who lobby them. Um, The deal that the EU is proposing, that they've um, done the trade deal with um, several big South American countries, kind of brings into play that idea of, at one level, at the level of policy, sure, you know, they want to be world leaders in anti-climate change measures and so on, um, but when it comes down to the needs of the system, the needs of trade, then that kind of goes out the window when you're exchanging cows for cars, for example, and shopping down the Amazon as a result and so on. I mean, of course, that's still to be ratified by all of the countries in the European Union. Um, I know that France has already raised concerns uh, about this. Um, but it does tell you something, doesn't it, about how global capitalism, I suppose, works and I often wonder about how that interacts with policy, that you can have the best policy in the world, but unless you're going to change at quite a fundamental level how the global system works and how global trade works, then it's always going to have a contradictory outcome, I think. Yeah, I think it will. And that's something Scotland are going to have to fight. Again, this is why I like the EFTA, because they're also the EU have developed what is called in scholarly work like a new generation of free trade agreements that are 
focus less on regulatory alignment via policy and more on information sharing, mm. exchange of knowledge, exchange of technical services, and that could play really well for Scotland because that would give them a chance to start sharing a lot of the Green New Deal domestic policies with the European Union and demonstrating that they can work. And that's where they can become policy uploaders. If they can demonstrate yeah. in a trade deal with the European Union that what they're doing works for their country and also is providing energy import needs for the European Union, then the European Union can start to take their broader global market power and apply it elsewhere. They can go to the United Nations and come with feasible policy that has worked in practice and that they have results for from trade agreements with Scotland and say this is policy that works and this is how the international community can start making a serious pivot towards real climate change policy because it will require an overhaul in the way we fuel the system but the inevitabilities and the catastrophes are going to become more and more evident each year so it's unfortunate that I think the need for it will have to be more pressing, but it doesn't mean that Scotland should wait until then. They should start building diplomatic ties and mutual recognition and cooperation mm -hmm. with the EU and a trade policy that defends the Green New Deal, but also shows that they're willing to share the benefits that they reap from it. They're willing to share the technical expertise that they gain from it. They're willing to share the knowledge that they gain from it. All of that they're willing to give to the EU. And that's how you establish yourself as a policy uploader rather than a policy downloader. Now, one of the things that I've talked about in a previous podcast when talking about negotiating with the UK over mm -hmm. debt and assets is the fact that Yes, we can look at the UK and its failings over Brexit and the failings of its negotiations, but we shouldn't underestimate the fact that Scotland actually has very little experience in doing any of this kind of negotiation. And mm. that's also true when it comes to trade negotiations. So I know you've got a chapter in your, the paper in your report that talks a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, first and foremost, Scotland needs to start assembling that team. And like you said... The English team or the British team has been revealed to be not as strong as they would have you believe, but the EU negotiating team is a really, really stringent one, and they're really, really tenacious, and they don't like to give <coughs> on a lot. And one approach that I think Scotland should look at is to learn from both the Nordic and Swiss models of their trade relationships with the European Union and try and broaden their horizons. Scotland do have the potential to export both natural resources and renewable energy to the European Union. And they also have a massive amount of potential in the maritime trade industry. Mm -hmm. And that could be a really big one because right now the European mm -hmm. Union takes the majority of its energy imports from Russia, who they don't have a very politically stable relationship with, yeah. and who don't align with a lot of the democratic processes that they look for. Um, so if Scotland can establish themselves as a negotiating power who are more aligned with the union's democratic principles and who can also access the Baltic countries by maritime freight and provide that energy import need, that's a very well-rounded approach to trade with the EU. But it requires establishing those diplomatic links arguably before independence. You need to have a long tenured relationship of communication and interaction with that policy body. 
and other other bodies that we could look to to tr sort of build up that experience or you know find other ways of, of building our skill set or building our relationships with other countries there's less politically impactful ones but yeah. like the commonwealth of nations you could join it because why not you left you left the uk yeah join the club yeah. um many many countries that have left uk rule have joined the commonwealth um including a couple that haven't left uk rule that, that, that have still that were never part of uk rule but have since joined the commonwealth it does seem like an organization that maybe is a little bit 20th century or 19th century even but What's the downside? That's okay. One I really like is the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement has a bottom-up implementation framework, meaning that each country provides a nationally determined contribution, and unless it's ratified as part of national law, it's not legally binding. Mm -hmm. So it makes it a bit superfluous in terms of climate change policy because a country can say, we're going to be completely carbon neutral by next week, and as long as it's not part of their national law, there's no punishment for that, but it's a chance for Scotland to get some free advertising on Green New Deal policy and demonstrate their circular economic practices at an international level and begin interacting with the EU. The EU yeah. have worked really hard with a lot of different countries interacting with the Paris Agreement and have not made a lot of progress, and they're looking to start doing that. It would be quite good if Scotland actually took the promises that have been made in this sort of regard to, to you know, say this is a climate emergency and then to start acting like it and start meaningfully moving towards these targets. Just because we say we're going to be zero carbon by 2045 doesn't mean we can wait until 2040 before starting. And I agree. And if, if the Green New Deal will keep Scotland from being a major global economic power, they should use it to establish themselves as the global hub on climate policy that yeah. that should be their forte in the international community just one question i've got um slightly outside the green new deal stuff in particular but definitely relating to to global trade you talked about a no deal brexit and i'm just thinking that the combination of no deal brexit and scottish independence where would that leave the remaining uk economy in relation to global trade if it loses both the, the oil and natural resources and renewable energies uh, potential of, of Scotland as well as uh, losing its um, relationship with the EU? Probably not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't done too much, too much research into that, but a no-deal Brexit is in my opinion, the biggest reason that Scotland should start thinking about their independence hmm. now. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the questions that w may, may come up is, okay, Scotland has these plans, but couldn't we do it within the UK? What's really... What, what, what is the trading landscape or trading strategy of the UK as pertains to Scotland? And mm. you know, maybe what are the advantages and disadvantages there? Well, the trading strategy of the UK when it was in the EU didn't really call on Scotland's strengths, um, namely maritime, which I mentioned earlier. The United Kingdom, when they were still a part of the European Union, or more a part of it than they yeah. are now, were the major short sea shipping country. They led the EU in maritime freight, and they had three ports in the top 20 EU ports in terms of volume of cargo intake. But all of those ports were located in the south of England. and 
50% or roughly, I think it's 47% of EU maritime trade happens or moves through the North Sea and the Baltic Sea. And Scotland have close to eight ports that could all access those with relative ease. And they could also access the top three EU shipping ports um, with relative ease from there. And so they could actually look to displace the role that Great Britain had in the UK previously they're kind of just sitting on the bench. Their strengths yeah. aren't being relied on. Yeah, there's, there's going to be no advantage to the UK moving uh, freight from Southampton to the east coast of Scotland just to invest more in Scottish ports when they have that concentration down there. Um, so you think it will really take independence to drive that, that investment with all the economic benefits and, and boost that, that will come with that? I do, just because there's been no real call to use it in the past. Um, UK economic policy and practices that relate to it are all concentrated around London. And Mm -hmm. Scotland really have less of a say and less of a role than they could. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of see this starting to play out in another nearby country, because you have Ireland, which at the moment is reconfiguring its maritime trade to, to bypass the UK and to try and take up more direct routes to the EU to maintain its links, its security of supply as much as its security of export. So these things are possible for countries the size of Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just to to, to round up, um, Callum is just finishing off this, this paper. He'll be finishing his tenure with us um, at the end of this week. So I really want to thank you for coming onto the podcast and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Hope you'll you'll be able to um, take take some pride in your paper when it eventually comes out. We'll get as much attention drawn to it as possible and who knows what your next project after that will be. Um, I think I'll just pass on to Jonathan to round off the rest of the podcast. Yeah, just uh, a great conversation there. I think as well it's just uh, fantastic to see someone like Calum uh, you know, come to Commonweal to take part in this research. It tells you a lot about the ethos of the organisation. Um, and it also is um, important to, as we always do, underline that none of this is possible without your contribution. So please do share the links, share the reports as they come out, sign up to our various newsletters, uh, donate to us if you can so that we can keep expanding our, our work and our research and our campaigning. Um, uh, with that I think that's a good place to to end the podcast Uh, thanks very much once again from me as well Callum uh, for for all your work all your research and um, yeah we look very much uh, forward to seeing the published report thank you thank you guys